You're listening to the Expert on Europe podcast by UACs, the membership association for contemporary European studies. I have with me Heidi Maurer, fellow in EU and international organizations at the London School of Economics. Hello, Heidi. Hello, Helena. Thanks for having me. Can we start with you telling us a bit about how you got into academia and European studies more specifically? Well, my motivation to start a postgraduate was first more of an interest for the subject um, than, than a clear career choice. So I was, I was doing international relations in Vienna and I was really fascinated by European cooperation and European integration as a specific case study of how states work together and try to solve problems together. And I think especially in Vienna where you have where you see quite vividly the added value of cooperation, but also the often failures of cooperation. That that was always something that fascinated me. And at this time, when I studied European studies, I was very lucky that we had a couple of professors visiting who were very engaging and also really forced us to think critically of what was happening. And I think that they really left a mark and also motivated me in saying, oh, I want to better understand of what's happening in Europe. At the moment, you're working in diplomatic studies. Can you tell us in a nutshell what diplomatic studies is? Then why is it interesting or important for the study of Europe today? Well, diplomatic studies is often termed as a sub-discipline of international relations. But I think the best way to explain it is that diplomacy is very much about establishing a relationship by making connections and it's more of an instrument that we use in foreign policy making. So diplomacy is very much about creating these links between states and between people to then consider that once we have these connections, how can we use them when we have to solve a problem together? In the popular discourse, it's often said, oh, we don't need these diplomats anymore, these stiff people who go to cocktail parties and drink champagne. But I think the danger is that for di- when diplomacy works well, you don't see it, because then it worked and we didn't have a crisis. And I think that's what I find so fascinating about the diplomatic studies. It's all about creating the right conditions that help to make sure that we don't have conflicts, that we don't have crises on the European or the international level. And that's also why I think diplomatic studies is so central when we talk about the European Union, because, of course, of the internal experience. So a lot of what we see is that this relationship between states is built on this process of negotiating, the process of talking to each other, this process of getting to know each other much better on the state level, but I think also on the transnational level. But at the same time, what I'm particularly interested in is then how Europeans use this experience that they're having of working so closely together and talking to each other also in the international level and how they together in the end try to represent the European Union. So very plainly when you when you go for example in Washington DC and you walk at the embassies, what does it mean for the Austrians to have the Austrian flag in front of the embassy but also the EU flag? What does it mean? What does it do to them? So that's in the end what I think is so interesting. What has your research on Austria revealed and how does it relate to the recent elections? The re- my research on Austria is what it shows me is of how important it is to keep connecting to the local discourse. So I think as academics, we are also very much drawn to the places where things are happening. So for me, that's very often Brussels, you know, that's where politics is discussed. That's where you meet the interesting diplomats. That's where you hear how policy initiatives 
are taken forward. But my research in Austria very much reminded me of how important it is then also for me as an individual, but also as an academic, to go back home and to connect to the local discourse, to try to explain things from a different perspective and also force people sometimes to see things from a local perspective. For the rest, I think, from a more politics side, what we see happening in Austria at the moment is, again, how important it is to be critical and how important it is not to say, oh, the stupid voters voted for the right wing or this kind of things, but to say, okay, why is this happening? How can we accept this choice but still make sure that we are this critical voice that makes sure that Austria is developing in the right direction? So I think there, again, a very important perspective also from the academic side to say be the critical voice but also take the voice of the people seriously and try to understand why they voted in a certain way. Many of my colleagues asked me like so are all Austrians becoming Nazis again? When you look at the motivations why people voted it's it's not that they become more right-wing but you see that they're scared. I think that's still something that we also see in many other countries. People vote in a certain way because they think that what's happening with them is scary and they don't see that someone in the political establishment is doing something for them. What kind of methodologies or resources are best to look at? What do you look at when you're asking these questions? I mean, I think what's interesting for me, because of course my research is more on European foreign policy making, so trying to understand politics in Austria is something more that comes out of my personal interest and I think where it's more easy for me as a researcher is I don't have to do the nitty-gritty research, but I actually can rely on the nitty-gritty research of a lot of Austrian colleagues and then try to also sometimes translate to English and just make their work known, put it in a different context. So I think that's, that's the contribution that I'm making. In terms of methodologies, I think it's with every research we need a variety. So... Yes, I'm not doing quantitative research, but it doesn't mean that I don't value the insights that we can have from quantitative Mm -hmm. surveys, from voter motivations and this kind of things. At the same time, I think, especially nowadays, it's very important to also look at the work of historians, trying to understand where do these different trends come from and what can we learn from history. So I think it's, it's always good to work with different disciplines and draw on different sources. Also because my interest in Austrian research is not so close to my foreign policy research, it's also easy for me to just connect with a wider policy world, to have the connection to journalists, to follow what they're doing, to read political magazines, to see on Twitter what's happening. I think it also helps me to not just be the academic who sits in the dusty room and not talk to people, but I think it, it helps to be open and show also that you care. I think that's also a good motivation mm-hmm. for research sometimes. On that note of variety of views, openness, exchange, how do topics of gender come into your research? I think one of the most important revelations that that came to my mind lately was that it's very important not to take things for granted. So that was also something I had from my experience in Master's University where I was working before. And what sometimes surprised me that when I was talking with our bachelor students especially, so... 20, 21-year-old young Europeans who have a lot of experience with traveling, are very open-minded, that they sometimes would get impatient with us and say, oh, you come with this gender feminist things again. We don't need this nowadays anymore. And we had long conversations about why it's still important to be sensitive to any form of discrimination, which I think gender is just one of them. Uh, And 
I also noticed it was very important for us also as, as academic instructors to raise their awareness and show them in the way they sometimes are very censoring in their view on the world. Um, so for example, just to give an example, we had a conversation about why it's not okay to address us with Mrs. Maurer or Mrs. so-and-so, but especially not calling me Mrs. and my male colleague, doctor or professor. Mm. And that was something that students were puzzled about, not so much because they would not see us equally or something, but they were not aware of this difference mm-hmm. that they are making. And we had a very interesting conversation with them by just showing them that but that changes the dynamics and it's, it, it has an impact. I hadn't noticed that we have to keep repeating these conversations time and again. And I think that's also something that I see with other things that from us sometimes in the academic discourse, oh, we talked about this and this topic, you know, the last five years we are done. But sometimes it's very worthwhile to keep repeating the main messages because students changing, we're getting new students. So I think it's important to keep being aware of these things. And sometimes I'm still shocked of how normal colleagues find it to have all-male panels, to have contributions in books with all-male authors. And very often they then get this argument, oh, we didn't find a qualified woman, which is, of course, nonsense. So I think also we have to be self-critical in of how we as a professional work on this. And I think that's, for example, one of the things I appreciate about UASIS because you have a lot of female role models there. But you also have a lot of male academics who are clear feminists and are supporting this other view that's sometimes very important. And I think it also makes us better academics because also in politics, when I'm talking about Austria, when you looked at, uh, at the debates, there was one woman among five very masculine men. Although there are lots of different critical voices in international relations that are finding their place now, the mainstream is still very male, white, centered, Western, European, American. So I think also there we have to be aware of bringing in other voices. We had a colleague who developed a tool to look at syllabi that we use for teaching and trying to calculate of how many of the authors that students are reading are white men from the Western world. And mm-hmm. just for fun, I was running some of the syllabi that we used also in our teaching and none of them got below a score of 70%. I think that's also important to be aware of these things and also very self-critically trying to bring in a different gender dimension, but also a different geographical perspective sometimes, mm-hmm. I think. You are very involved in networks that look at teaching and learning practices and you're interested in problem-based learning. Can you tell us more about that? My expertise and my interest in problem-based learning very much developed like the rest of my academic career just by coincidence and sometimes being at the right time and the right place. So I got my first contact with problem-based learning when I started my job at Maastricht University where they have as a philosophy that all the classes have been have to be designed according to problem-based learning. What means small seminar style, 15 students in a room. They have two meetings per week. Students are in charge of having a pre-discussion. They're in charge of having then a post-discussion. It took me nearly two to three years to actually understand why we are doing what we are doing. And I think that's where my interest and also my engagement in, in innovating teaching and learning in higher education came from because only after three years I understood why we're using the system and also why I actually like it. And I think the most important 
point of problem-based learning is that it takes students' interest seriously, but it also allows them to make mistakes to a certain degree in shaping their own process of learning, mm-hmm. just to perhaps be a bit more clear what I mean by that. So normally, before students start studying a certain subject, we give them a little trigger. It can be a short text, a picture, and in the end, together in a group, they are supposed to define what do they want to find out, what is interesting about it, what's relevant. And that's in the end, like mimicking a research process, so what's your question? And why should we care about this question? I think that's a very important process for students to go through. So that's normally what they do before, of course, with the help of us academics in the room, but also if the materials are well designed with giving them certain cues. And once they decided, okay, what do we want to find out? They have to make a research plan in terms of what do we know? And I think one of the nice things, if you have a diverse student group, they already learn there from each other by just saying, okay, what do we all with our different experience actually know about the subject, what do we assume, what would predict should be the answers to our questions, but also what kind of research do we now have to do to answer our questions. Then they go home and do their research, and then we have one hour where they, in the end, come together, share their research that they found, try to concise the the findings that they're having, and then we do the the next step. And what I like about this so much is that before students learn something, they are forced to think of what what do I want to find out about this topic? What connections do I make with this topic? So I think it helps students to see, okay, why am I studying now the European Council? Why is this relevant for me? And I think that's, that's a very important step that students are taking before they actually start learning. Later on, um, what I very often notice is that the way I was introduced to problem-based learning is a very normal way of how people are introduced to innovation. So you get an expert who tells you what to do, and then you do that. But that's actually not how you can use innovation in teaching and learning. Mm-hmm. I think very often it's much more important to understand what's the rationale behind it, because then you can actually adapt it to your own particular circumstances. Do you have any top tips for students entering your research area or related disciplines? The first one would be read and really read the research that has been there. So especially when you are trying to enter a new research project, I think what we see lately is that people skim read. We all do that. Huh? We, we have a lot of information to process and we just quickly look through things. But uh, one of the qualities that we should cherish much more as academics is actually to listen. And listening by reading is one of them, by really allowing authors to develop their ideas and seeing of how can you use that for your own project. And I think one of the things that I learned in the past 10 years the most is not only read what has been published in the last three years, but go back in time, and especially in my subject area of European foreign policy cooperation, really going back to the things that colleagues wrote in the 70s and 80s. Surprised me because they were asking similar questions than we do nowadays. And having this comparative dimension of our time really sometimes helps me to better understand what's what's happening nowadays. So I think reading is very important, but also really taking the time for letting an argument of an author develop is, is very important. So that's the first one. And the second one is connect and talk to people. And don't be scared of talking to colleagues, but also sometimes to professors. So I remember, perhaps also coming from Austria, which is much more hierarchical, I was so scared of talking to other professors in the field when I saw that at a conference. I hardly dared to speak to them or to greet them. And it took me some time to realize, well, actually, everyone loves talking about their research and Mm. contacting people and asking for help very often 
is considered as something very positive by the people that you contact. So regarding your first tip, are you saying you've noticed a change in terms of students' attention spans? Is it to do with social media usage, perhaps? I think it's it's a very interesting question, a very important one. Um, also of how, how technology changes the way we work and how the technology changes the way we can connect with students and other academics. Is it an either-or question? I had a very interesting debate with some of our students in Maastricht about lecture recordings. And it was a lecture that where a professor from Cambridge gave this very fascinating talk of one and a half hours. And me and my other academic colleague, we were sitting and taking notes. And we were looking around in the, in the room. And apart from us, there were two more students out of 90 who were taking notes. And we were just fascinated by how do they process information and how do they make sure they still remember. And afterwards, we had just had a very honest chat with some of them. And they were telling us, well, I can either listen or I can take notes. I'm concentrating on what I'm listening to. And I was fascinated by this because it was like the way I learned it is by taking notes and processing information. At the same time, I see sometimes students taping things and then listening to it again. I'm like, that's the most horrendous thing you can do if you have a lecture of two hours where someone was talking and you now have to listen to it again that is not made for you to consume it this way is horrible and you're just wasting your time. So I think probably it's also about finding a middle way of saying, okay, everyone has their own way of processing information, of dealing with thoughts. But I still think that academia sometimes has to offer certain tools that work in the past that still work and that we should mm-hmm. train our students for. There should be room for different things. But also realize that sometimes that's our own failure because some of the syllabi that I'm looking at, I'm like, I couldn't read this thing in a way. How are students supposed to go through all this material? So sometimes I think we also have to think of, okay, perhaps something small is beautiful. You know, give them one good book to read and give them the time and space to read it. I think could be more useful than, you know, overloading them with 15 journal articles. I think one thing that I see is that information spans are getting shorter. Having a lecture of one and a half hours is more or less the limit. At the same time, let's also be self-critical when we think about academic conferences. For anything that lasts more hour, you see people already doing other things and writing emails and this kind of thing. So I think it's not only our students, it's also us. We also just have to find a way of how to use technology in a, in a smart way. And that's also with social media. Is social media like Twitter? Is it the right forum for me to develop my highly complex academic arguments? No. Is it a way of where I can tell a wider audience what I'm thinking and how we can use our research? I think so. So I think it's, again, it's about using the right tool for the right thing that you want to communicate. At the same time, perhaps just to follow up on this, because one of the things that sometimes I got a bit stressed about is because we are supposed to be good teachers, good researchers, we should do outreach and have impact. It seems like every year we're adding more tasks. And I think what's important there is to really also have a plan and say, you know, I'm at this stage in my academic career. I think now the research has to have the priority. Sometimes I'm getting very frustrated when people play teaching against research. I think it shouldn't be the one or the other. But at the same time, I think it's good for oneself to sometimes prioritize. So when you focus on research, then do less of outreach. And once you've finished the research project, yeah, then you might have more time for, for public involvement again. And we'll leave it there for today. Thank you very much, Heidi. Thank you. Bye. For more UAC's podcasts, visit uaces.org forward slash podcast. And don't forget to subscribe for new episodes.